Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the Billboard.com Pop Shop Podcast. My name is Keith Caulfield, and I am the co-director of Charts at Billboard. The Billboard Pop Shop Podcast is your one-stop shop for all things pop on Billboard's weekly charts. In addition, you can always count on a lively discussion about the latest pop news, fun chart stats and stories, new music, and guest interviews with music stars and folks from the world of pop. Today on the show, we've got Coming Around Again with Billboard.com Senior Associate Editor Andrew Unterberger. Andrew will be chatting with Billboard Senior Editor Frank DiGiacomo about the 40th anniversary of Billy Joel's The Stranger. The guys talk about how the album that turned Billy Joel into a superstar is practically a greatest hit set into itself and how the album and Billy have outlived the critics that disparaged it at the time. But first, before we get started, if you enjoy the podcast, subscribe to the show on iTunes so you won't miss an episode and give us a rating or review while you're at it. And if you want to explore more podcasts from Billboard, visit iTunes.com slash Billboard Podcasts. So before we get into the show, did you know Billy Joel's The Stranger generated four top 40 charting singles on the Billboard Hot 100, including his first top 10 hit, Just The Way You Are. The song hit number three in February of 1978 and was followed by three further top 40 hits, Moving Out, Only the Good Die Young, and She's Always a Woman. As for the album, it was a chart monster, giving Joel his first top 10 effort, peaking at number two on the Billboard 200 chart. It spent six weeks stuck in the runner-up slot, trapped behind the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which actually racked up 24 weeks at number one. So now, let's head back to 1977 with Billy Joel's The Stranger on Coming Around Again. Hello, and welcome to Coming Around Again, Billboard's anniversary theme podcast celebrating anniversaries in the music world. Uh, today we're talking about Billy Joel's The Stranger album, which turns 40 uh, as of Friday, September 29th. Uh, so it's an interesting album, and uh, here, here to talk about it with us, we've got Billboard senior editor Frank Giacomo. How's it going, Frank? All right, Andrew. How are you? Thanks for having me here. All right, and thanks for coming on. Now, uh, I feel like when I asked you to be on this podcast, like, you were ready for it. Like, you, you, you were, you know, I asked you if you were a Billy Joel guy. I pretty, pretty, had a pretty good idea that you were, but uh, you know, your, your response was pretty immediate. And, uh, and you were just telling me just now that you actually saw Billy on the on the tour for this album. Yeah, I. Uh, it's funny. I he was one of the first concerts I went to. I mean, I think the very first was J- 
Jefferson Starship. But then when The Stranger came out, it was just a huge album. I'm from Youngstown, Ohio, and it was okay. a huge album there. And even before then, Piano Man and Captain Jack were just staples of uh, FM radio sure. and um, two of my favorite songs. And so I, when I heard... Uh, uh, the Stranger, I just fell in love with that album and, and managed to find some friends who of driving age who took me to see the show. <laughs> so it was a great show. He, he That was the thing. He's such an amazing live act. Uh, just he, I, I, and Then I saw him again for the 52nd Street tour, and then there was a tour in between that and Glass Houses, and I saw him those three times. So I'm personally, like, growing up in the suburbs of Philly and kind of spending a lot of time around the New York tri-state area, like Billy Joel is about as big of an institution as it gets, uh, right? At least for you know the kind of the white suburban set. But did that that also kind of translate to Youngtown, Ohio? Like you, you yeah. go there, does everybody know like all the words to all the songs and stuff? Yeah, and I think I mean it's interesting because it, for me, Billy Joel's like you know he's this guy who I guess he was born in the Bronx but then lived in Levittown, mm-hmm. and so he's kind of got this combination of uh, sort of urban attitude, but then suburban disillusionment yeah <laughs> and that was very youngstown at the time because it okay. was and so i think he really spoke to a lot of the people where i lived a lot of the guys especially guys my age who were in, in high school and so you, you talked about how you know he, you already had a couple couple favorite songs of his and a couple songs that were, that were big on radio uh so the album before this and just just to give a little background uh, the album before this was turnstiles in right. 1976 uh probably I, I would say it's one of his best albums i would say that uh you know, it, it has in like a number of the songs I would consider favorites, and songs that have, have sort of endured as as Billy Joel's kind of standards. You know, it's got New York State of Mind, which is right. probably one of the you know five most famous songs about New York ever. Right. Uh, we were just talking about Miami 2017, which he yeah. still starts shows with all the time. Say goodbye to Hollywood. A uh, number of like really really recognizable songs. Would you like to take a guess where that album peaked on the Billboard 200 chart? Wow. Um... I'm guessing that it probably didn't do well at all because I do remember he was kind of struggling as an artist. So I'm going to say it hit 30. Number 122. <laughs> oh, <geez>. So like <laughs> this, this is kind of this kind of took me aback when I was doing some research for this. Like right. as you mentioned, Piano Man was obviously that was a top 40 hit. Right. It's probably the first Billy Joel song that a lot of people knew. And he had other songs that kind of made it onto FM radio. And, you know, he had success. He was a success, successful touring musician. He, he broke even. But he wasn't a star like, yeah, by, exactly. by any means, and, and and he was actually on kind of a cold streak coming into the stranger, which which is sort of it's it's sort of surprising to think about, especially considering how many of those songs from from his mid seventies have gone on to be kind of considered classics, and considering just how monstrously successful the stranger was, like it, it you know went diamond eventually, it became the best selling album in Columbia Records history, it basically made him a superstar, and and that that was him for the rest of his life. Right. Four years later, he's, he's still on that level, never really fell off. Uh, if you could kind of like crystallize it in one sort of main point or, or main difference about this album, what was it about this album that you think took him to that like like out of the doldrums and into that kind of almost superstar class? Uh, it's interesting. I mean, I just feel like he kind of for me a lot of it is if I don't know this may be a weird thing, but it's like if if Frank Sinatra had successfully done a rock album, like there's this okay. it just gels in a way that it's. There's something timeless about the music. There, and the other thing about Billy Joel that I think is great, and why this album works better than say the last one, is there's storytelling going on in this mm-hmm. album that I, was on the Piano Man album. But then I think he kind of moved away from a little bit, or okay, yeah. it was a little abstract. I mean, Miami, see, it feels kind of thematically connected on this album, right. to a certain extent. Exactly, and uh, you know, it it really captured I think the sort of 
zeitgeist of the 70s where people were sort of struggling with this kind of like I'm killing myself for what like right. you know moving out is such a great look at being middle a middle class driver I think yeah and you see that in a couple of kind of various spots throughout the album where you know the you know Brenda and Eddie and they're, they're like Sears furniture and right. uh, scenes from Italian restaurant and just the, you know the entire story of Vienna basically is, is like saying hey just like kind of chill like you don't you don't need to exactly to, to better yourself so dramatically so quickly uh and how much it so that, I mean that, that's obviously a big part of it is that he you know he kind of I don't think he improves as a storyteller, but he's sort of focused as a storyteller. Uh, and he also started working with the guy who was going to basically help define his his his, his albums from there on. And, and from a sonic perspective, that's Phil Ramone. Phil Ramone, right? Uh, you know, what, what do you see as a, you know what, what Phil Ramone kind of either added to Billy Joel's like you know sonic palette or just how he focused him? Like how, how do you th- how do you think that collaboration ended up paying off? Well, so, I so remember reading Phil Ramone having this sort of. I think he called it like the the no bullshit agreement with with the musicians, and it was like they just were very honest to each other about songs. Mm-hmm. I also think that Billy was very adamant about using the musicians that he played live with. Right. I think that's one of the things that makes him such a great uh, artist too. Is that he it, the music is sounds great and live, and Phil Ramone was into that. Yeah, and. and uh... One of the interesting kind of what if stories about this album is that it, like apparently he was originally supposed to record it with George Martin, the, the Beatles producer. Right, I've read that. Uh, yeah. But George Martin didn't want to use his band. Yeah, and you know Billy Joel is as big of a Beatle maniac as, as it comes. But uh, he said, "No, that's that's a deal breaker for me. Like uh, if if uh, if I can't play with my band, you know, it's just not going to work out." And apparently, like after the tremendous success of The Stranger, uh, George Martin writes him a letter saying, "Like, hey, you were right. Back, oh, no, back home, that part." Yeah. <laughs> Have you ever seen photos of Billy Joel like as a young guy? He he, he like had the total John Lennon look with the glasses and the little goatee. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was I, I haven't seen a lot of young Billy Joel, but I was watching like a very short like uh, YouTube clip that he had filmed doing an interview where he kind of plays the piano and answers uh, some British reporters' questions. And I was struck by how much yeah, he, like I, I I don't think of Billy Joel ever as being a young man. Yeah, uh, exactly, exactly. That's and, exactly right. And he kind of he kind of looks like Billy Joe Armstrong, actually, in Green Day, <laughs> yeah. like back in the day. And yeah, it's 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 interesting to think of him in that stage where he's not yet, you know, Billy Joel, the institution. He's just a twenty eight year old piano man trying to, to trying to make it like on the same level as some of these other guys, like Elton John, and like he, he talks about being compared to Leon Russell, and it's you know. Leon Russell had a great career, obviously, but it's crazy to think of Billy Joel being in a spot where he could be envious of right. somebody like Leon <laughs> exactly. Russell's career. Exactly. Uh, and the, the Beatles thing is especially interesting to me because the the like the, the sort of uh, like central dilemma of Billy Joel's career, as I've seen, and I think I, I might be paraphrasing or if not outright stealing from Chuck Klosterman when I say this, but uh, he always struck me as somebody who was naturally McCartney but wanted to be Lennon. That's interesting. Like yeah. he, he's a very natural, like he's he's a tunesmith, he's a formalist, he's you know a traditionalist almost. I mean, he's a big you know Tim Pan Alley fan and Spectre and kind of like the, the, the classic mold of, of pop music. And he has these gigantic hits, and then and he could have had an entire life's worth of you know just the way you are and the longest times and songs like that. But he also had this really like sardonic kind of yeah. Like like a bitterness to him and, and a desire to to be saying more than than you know just these kind of. Uh, Pat love songs. He really wanted to kind of make a difference as well, right? Uh, and he thought that that was—I don't, I don't know if he thought that that's who he was or that's just who he wanted to be. But it was kind of like the warring between those two sides of him. I think makes him so interesting. I mean, does, does that make sense at all? Is that uh, totally? I mean, I—I I re- I remember reading something where he said, you know, 
well, A, he took so much critical guff when he was coming up. Sure. I mean, I remember reading something about Robert Crisco writing that the better Billy Joel gets, the more obnoxious he becomes. <laughs> and, Probably not totally untrue either, <laughs> yeah. but yeah. And, and he was also like a Golden Gloves boxer. So, you, you know, there's, there's a little <laughs> bit of the pugilist in him. Yeah. And then I think, like, I, there's a quote, and I actually wrote this down, All because right. it said, he said, I don't think a love song is effective unless there's an element of anxiety in it and an undercurrent of darkness. And I think that that's what that's, makes that's a lot yeah. of his stuff uh, kind of last over the years. And I do think, like, the best love songs have this sort of sense of insecurity and, you know, so... Well, it's I certainly the case with the, uh, the two love songs in this album, I guess, which were both inspired by, I guess, his real-life wife at the time. Elizabeth Weber. Elizabeth Weber, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so he writes Just the Way You Are, which is, you know, it, it sounds sappy, but as you're, as you're saying, it's really not. It's, it's got a very kind of... You know, it, it, it's insecure. It's got these, this undercurrent of, uh, you know, want, wanting to, to both assure her and assure himself and, and wondering, like, like that if, if this moment's going to last sort of thing. And as it turns out, it doesn't. Right. But, uh, you know, who knows if the public cares about all that because it becomes this, this monstrous hit and, uh, you know, basically changes his career. But he didn't even want it on the album. He, he hated the song and so did the rest of his band. Like, uh, did you, actually, do you, do you know the reason why he ended up putting it on the album? Like, what, what, what the, uh, the swing I, factor I think was? I, I heard that Phoebe Snow and maybe Linda Ronstadt said you've got to put it on. Phoebe Snow and Linda Ronstadt. <laughs> Very good, yes. Uh, yeah, they're they're recording in the booth over and they hear this, you know, this beautiful song with the, you know, the 10cc synths and uh, right. this amazing sax solo and, and uh, you know, the, the band, you know, the band's totally nonplussed about it, but they're like, oh, you got to, this is a great song. Like, hey, you got to put it on there. Yeah. Uh, you know, and he still kind of dismisses it as, you know, chick music. Right. But, you know, obviously it connects. It wins a bunch of Grammys. I and mean, what, what do you think of Just the Way You Are? You know, it's funny. Like, there was a period where I think when I first heard the album, I liked it. Then there was a period where I got sick of it. And now that I've uh, sort of uh, been through my own long term relationships, <laughs> uh, where I, th- I think it's an incredible song and I sure. think it lasts. Um, the, the funny story I heard too about it was that. He played the song to Elizabeth Weber on his birth her birthday as a gift. Ooh, that's that's risky. And her response was, "Do I get the publishing?" Because <laughs> <laughs> so, she was his manager, right? She like, was both his wife and his right, manager, yeah, and apparently is, very good at being yeah. a manager. Yeah. So, oh, and, and that that relationship plays even more into to "She's Always a Woman," the other kind right. of big hit love song off this album, which is really like if you look at the lyrics printed out, it is not a particularly complimentary song. Uh, and it kind of makes her sound almost like a bad guy. Like, uh, but there is, there's like a respect to it. That exactly. It's very, very rare. It's almost like a feminist love song in, in that he, you know, he's, he's saying, you know, not, not that, uh, not that she's always a woman and that like, like she, you know, she's, she's so beautiful. She's so, you know, whatever. She's so magical, but that, you know, you know, she does have these kind of like, you know, masculine traits and that, you know, she has a very business oriented mind and she, right. she's very practical, uh, but she's ahead of her time, and and she's 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 beautiful to me in in, in this in this specific way, uh, and that's a really kind of powerful sentiment for a song that comes off kind of nasty sometimes. You know, it's funny. I, I'm so glad to hear you say that because I I mean I'm I'm a uh, I'm not a big fan of the sort of uh, extent to which political correctness has taken hold of our world, <laughs> and I just think like this is a completely honest song. I mean, yeah. it's so honest, and it really is something that's incredibly personal. And that line that you say about, you know, uh, her just being like ahead of her time. Yeah, like, what other love song I know. would ever have a line like that? That's it's crazy. Amazing. And, it, and you know, so, uh, and I think this like, you know, the best songs are personal and then they become universal. Sure. And I feel like that's another reason why this song still to me, like I love this song m- way more than just the way you are. Okay. I just think it's, if, I, I don't know, if, if you 
been in a really long-term relationship, I think there's a certain amount of gamesmanship that goes on. And, you know, this is kind of him saying, Hey, you're, you're, you're better than me. You're, you're, you're more than my equal. And I right. think that that's really cool. And that there is something to be said for kind of growing into being a Billy Joel fan. And that's probably a large part of why, you know, he still sells out stadiums across the world with, with people who are, you know, anywhere between the ages of, you know, 20 and 80. Like, right. uh, cause you, you do kind of pick up on different things and you, you relate to different elements of the lyrics as you grow older. Uh, oh, what about the other singles, the other big songs off this album? Yeah, moving Out or... Uh... Well, Moving Out, I mean, for me, The Stranger, the, that's the song that I just remember hearing and hearing and listening over and over it's again. Moving Out. Uh, I'm sorry, it's The Stranger. Oh, uh, the song The Stranger. Yeah, the song The Stranger. Which wasn't even really a single in the U.S. No, no. Yeah. But I just remember hearing it and going, oh my God. And, you know, all these, then, like, all these years later, I remember one of my favorite Albums and I think one of Bruce Springsteen's best albums mm-hmm. is uh, is Tunnel of Love and to me the Stranger is oh, really describes disguise. Yeah, like sure. twenty how many years before that uh, a decade but uh, yeah yeah I, I, I can see that certainly but definitely like a more theatrical than the, right exactly really disguise has got <laughs> yeah. a little bit more of a you know like an Andrew Lloyd Webber quality to yeah, it almost exactly. but uh, yeah like and uh, you know shout out to Thormo and like. Apparently the you know the famous really famous whistling hook on the song uh, he was you know Billy Joel was was just whistling it as kind of like a, a guide track because he was they were going to lay down a, a flute or a sax or something to to be that part over the kind of the twinkling piano intro and Phil Ramone says no like that's that's the song like yeah. you whistling it. and obviously it goes on to be uh, you know one of his most famous hooks it's such a great thing and so you know Phil Ramone earns his paycheck I think like <laughs> right then and there with, the, with that one piece of advice and the same thing with the uh, ak 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 in mm. moving out like wasn't that sure. supposed to be just a kind of him describing how he wanted something to hear oh like, I, didn't, I didn't know that one I think you Phil got me Ramone on that said no that's on the song oh the, those two like <laughs> that, that, that back to back that that deserves some like a lifetime's partnership with Billy Joel I think it's good, it's good that they stuck together uh, yeah moving moving out I think maybe is my favorite of the big songs of this album like uh you know it, it, it i guess it's the sort of like it sets up a trend that billy joel has like the first the first track on his albums is always this kind of like punch you in the chest rocker and it's right. got this kind of like lean guitar and like kind of muscular growl to it and you actually hear like the guitar the yeah, rather you hear like, the car revving up at a, at a certain point the, the the chorus is unbelievable and uh uh yeah that that song probably stands uh stands up for me as the best uh only the good die young i've never been like a huge fan of to be honest yeah, I, I well, as being a Catholic boy, I kind of okay. loved it, but and and I also like I thought ridiculous that there was sort of an outcry over it. Yeah, like it got, it got banned, like at Seton Hall or something. <laughs> yeah. it, it, it's it's a very like it's, it's really a pretty innocent song to to draw the the church's ire, but it, it, it was just uh, like one or two like really pointed lyrics. I think that that kind of you know stuck in the craw of uh, right of, of, of whoever was was in charge of protesting these things, but. Uh, he says like it made the song blow up. That like the song was kind of floundering, and then uh, there was this you know very outcry, minor pro- exactly. yeah, very minor outcry, and now everyone's like flocking to the record stores to get. He says you know ban my records more often. You know, you? <laughs> and I remember reading when he was I guess he was on Saturday Night Live at, around the time that that Stranger came out, and and they didn't want him to play that song, and so he played it. Of course, and yeah. uh, and you know. Uh, I don't rem- I don't remember that performance, but I wish I- I'd hope that I can go back and see it. Yeah, uh, have you ever heard the reggae version of the song? No. So like, uh, apparently, the story behind this is that like he Billy Joel imagined the song was a reggae song. Uh, his drummer Liberty DeVito hates reggae. <laughs> I think it's Liberty DeVito. Apologies, yes, Liberty DeVito. That, if I'm, no, if, I'm, uh, if it's somebody else in his band, I apologize. Okay. But I think it's Liberty DeVito, and he says fine. So he they kind of compromise on this this sort of shuffle kind of swing thing and. Uh, 
but the, there exists like an alternate take on one of his box sets that that you get to hear the song in its kind of original reggae incarnation. Oh I actually think it's pretty cool. So you've heard uh, it? I, yeah, I was listening to it on YouTube earlier. Uh, it, it, the verses work pretty well. The chorus is kind of flat. And, yeah, uh, and uh, it doesn't have like those those saxes that are kind of like buoyant and kind of carry carry the song's melody through. But uh, the only like the fourth biggest single off the album. It's only the good die young. That that song's held up pretty well for for a lot of people. I know my friends, like my my Long Island friends, who you know for Billy Joel's, uh, you know he's, he's a religious icon basically. Like that that's that's one of these <laughs> yeah. songs. Is only the good die young. Yeah. Uh, but another thing about this album that's just so incredible is that you know we talk about all these singles, but like the, the deep cuts on this album are, are more famous than you know ninety percent of, of of other album right. singles. Uh, Scenes from Italian Restaurant maybe like one of his you know, oh, five or God. ten most famous songs. Uh, and is, is that one? Is that one of your Billy Joel favorites? Oh my God! It's I love it, and it's uh, you know, um, for me, uh, what is that? Is that movie Francis Ford Coppola, Peggy Sue? Peggy Sue Marianne, Marianne, it's, sure. it's the uh, this that's the song version of that movie. It's like okay. this incredible the sense of like you know who you are in high school changes as you get older, mm-hmm. and what you think is really smart to do now is not smart five years from now, and it just totally captured that to me again that sort of middle-class strivers world that was, you know, I think as the 80s came and, and Yuppie Dumb advanced, was sort of let go. Yeah. And I, I wonder, like, formally, it's it's you know, his entry into the sort of that, that like, burgeoning, uh, like, multi-part rock epic, like, FM standard thing. Like, you know, it's his Bohemian Rhapsody or his Jungle Land. Or, right. It's like everyone had to have one, and this was his, like, okay, I'm playing the song and encores for the rest of my life after this. Well, I remember reading, too, that he said he was inspired by... Uh, some of the songs on Abbey Road, I think, okay, that, yeah. that he liked yeah. the way that the Beatles worked in these fragmentary things where songs would kind of go in mm-hmm. and out, and that that's inspired by uh, that. That that's the sort of the way he originally was just like Brenda and Eddie, and then he started putting these other parts onto it. Okay, uh, and so I was reading a New York Times interview of him from like 2008, I think. Uh, and the guy asks, you know, he, he's complaining about all of his old hit songs and about how he doesn't like any of them anymore. And uh, the guy says, well, okay, well, what were the ones you actually got right? And he names two songs, and one of them's on this album. Can you can you guess which one it is? Uh, well, I'm going to, since, uh, can I get a hit? Is it, is it anything we've discussed yet? It's not something we've discussed yet, no. <laughs> so it's either Vienna or Everybody Has a Dream. <laughs> it's Vienna. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that much, yeah. It's, it's right. Vienna. Uh and like I remember, like, the last time I saw him, when I saw him at the Nassau Coliseum show, uh, they like he asked the crowd. Uh, he's like, "Okay, you guys get to call this one." He says, uh, "I got one song that was a big hit, and one song was an album track. Uh, it's just the way you are, or Vienna. And which one do you want to hear?" And he kind of you know he does the the the, the applause meter thing right. informally. Uh, and he kind of projected that he wanted the, the crowd <laughs> to lead towards Vienna, but to, to the crowd's credit, man, they they went for it. Like the, the Vienna won hook, line, and sinker over uh, over just the way you are. And I think that it's it's a sort of litmus test between uh, like the the big Billy Joel fans and the casual Billy right, Joel fans. Exactly. I think if you if you if you love Vienna, then, then that means that you're really part of the cult. I uh, and I do. I mean, are you is are you a fan of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't consider it one of my favorites of his, but yeah. it, it's definitely like an affinitive Billy Joel song. I would say. I I um I read too that like I guess that's where his dad moved at one point in his life, and yeah. so it, it, and he was there visiting him, and he saw a ninety year old woman working on this in the street and he said like what's she doing he said well 
you know, here people work very late in life, and he's said like, oh, wow, so this could be a place where I can come and be appreciated when I'm older. Now, I'll say, <laughs> if you don't know that backstory, uh, the line, when will you realize that Vienna waits for you, makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, it clearly it struck a chord, and, and it's, it's one of the few songs that he seems to still have appreciation for, for within his back catalog. I uh, Yeah, I love that song. And I love Everybody Has a Dream, too. That's, that's to me, like him doing Ray Charles. Yeah, it kind of sounds more like Randy Newman to me. Like <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't, I'm not feeling. You don't feel everybody has song? a dream. Now, I, I will, say, I will say that uh, get it right the first time, which is sort of the other like, like you know, if you're if you're doing if you're doing like the bar trivia, like name all the tracks on the Stranger. Right. You get the first seven, I think, probably pretty easily, and then the last two, you, you got to really know the album to know the album. But get it right the first time, I think, is actually a really great song. Uh, wow, we disagree on really? that. Really? Okay. <laughs> Go ahead. I like the opening like, little drum uh, shuffle <laughs> thing. Like, it's, 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 it's like a, yeah. like, I think it can be sampled for a hip-hop break like 20 years later. That yeah, well, that's true. Well. Uh, I like the, the, the little flute hook, and I, I think it's a good chorus. It's, just, it's, a, it's a very very strong chorus to me, but everybody has a dream. It's, it's it kind of, you know, it sounds pandering to me. It's a, it's, it's very kind of lightweight <laughs> gospel, not not his forte, True. but but I I do like the, that the uh, the album ends with a kind of you know, the, the return of the the stranger whistling motif, right? And I think it's it's, it's almost like a proud seventies tradition of these classic rock albums that are just so front loaded that by the time you get to the end of them, like like can you can you say what the last track on Hotel California is? Like, no, exactly. exactly. <laughs> like so they, they put all the all the hits up first. So I think uh, right. it's a sign of the times in that respect. But uh, yeah, I mean like for for. You know, I, I wonder about this album's legacy to a certain extent because so much of it has been co-opted by radio, and so much of it is only like if if you own the greatest hits, if you own like Billy Joel's greatest hits, Volume One and Two, which sold a combined whatever twenty five million copies, uh, and pretty much every everybody I know either they have it or their parents have it or they, they grew up listening to it, basically. Right. And you have all these songs. There's no reason to go back and investigate The Stranger because, like, it's this 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 is basically Greatest Hits Volume One is The Stranger. Yeah. Uh, and so I wonder, like, if people, like, you know, Billy Joel fans growing up now, like, do they even care about this album? Do they even care about Billy Joel albums? Period. Or is it all just uh, just the hits? That's that's a good question. I mean, I as as someone who remains in the the minority of liking albums and the way albums roll mm-hmm. out and and sort of tell a story i mean i i think this is one of those that w- is worth revisiting because uh, you know I, i'm not i don't know what the sequence is on the greatest hits whether mm-hmm. they do and but th- this thing unfolds in a way that i think really works as an album in a way that today a lot of you know well we both know it's it's all about the singles now sure yeah so uh, and we touched on this before, but uh, obviously another thing I heard in the album is that you know, Billy Joel's never really gotten the critical respect that you know, I think most people would say at this point that he deserved, uh, but certainly never that was commiserate with his commercial success at the time. Right. Uh, and like, uh, what, what do you think it is, like, if you can kind of like, like pinpoint to one thing that separated him from somebody like Bruce Springsteen? Is it just like the kind of theatricality of it or the fact that you can see him you know, trying a little bit more than you know, Bruce has kind of more of a natural sort of vibe to him like what what is it that that made billy joel such critical anathema to, to his, well, his peers and it's interesting because I, I mean i think i think it had to do with the times i mean i when i remember i saw billy joel live before i saw bruce springsteen live mm-hmm. and i just remember coming out of that show just being like on fire it was he was it was such an amazing live act and he's you know and you know he, you know, it's funny for a bald guy. He had hair. In that. <laughs> he had hair. He's dressed up. The band was really hot, mm-hmm. and he just really put on an amazing performance. I think a he started kind of getting his great success as the music world was changing. We were getting 
punk mm-hmm. and 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 the sort of new wavy stuff and then and you know the new york the look at the new york music scene is you know talking heads and and sure. all these things and so there's that and meanwhile even in the heyday of springsteen and all the other people that were going on at that time like he's got this sort of component to him that is like great american songbook that i think is really just never fit anywhere except that with the great American songbook. So I think, I think it's one of the reasons why he's lasted so long, but it's also one of the reasons why people just didn't know what to do with him. Mm-hmm. You know? So I'd love to know what you think. Well, no, I think I, I, I do agree with that. Uh, I think that actually, you know, he and Springsteen probably had more in common than people realized at the time. Uh, but uh, yes, you know, Springsteen. I think they, he you know, there was a sort of like you know, po- poeticism to his early lyrics that kind of got him the benefit of the doubt as he got older and more commercial. Yeah, like certainly like Born in the USA is as commercial as anything that exactly. And uh, you know, and Bruce Springsteen wrote some preposterous lyrics himself. That uh, you know, <laughs> and he, he was certainly not not devoid of pretension. So uh, there, there's there's more of a crossover there than people probably uh, gave him credit for. But there there is something to the the idea that, that Billy Joel was always a very self conscious performer. A very self-conscious songwriter, and uh, yeah, just as much in the pop world as of the rock world, which I think, yeah, moving forward is going to be a good thing for his longevity. Yeah. Now that you know the kind of traditional arguments about rock credibility have sort of fallen by the wayside. Like I I was reading like an old an old interview from Billy Joel's from 15 years ago, and it it mentions Robert Christgau again, uh, and he says, "Oh, it'll never happen. Like he's never going to get the critical respect that he wants uh, because it's just not good enough." Is what he says, and I think if that's the reason, then that's just not true. Like it, yeah. there, there has to be a more fundamental reason for why critics didn't like Billy Joel, and I think that whatever that reason was, it's it's, it's fallen by the wayside with every decade to come. Now I, I don't know if he's going to be included in greatest album of all time type lists, but the the songs have certainly held up. Yeah, and I think that my generation and, and generations to come. Are, are you know they're they're going to be so far removed from whatever kind of politics played into his critical reputation in the seventies and eighties that they're just going to appreciate the songs and 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 they'll they'll exist forever basically as just great songs and, and no one will care whether he was cool or not how hard he was trying they'll just know that you know they've been passed down from generation to generation and and, and they still sound pretty good today yeah uh, but speaking of that would you would you have any interest in a Billy Joel album twenty seventeen like a new Billy Joel album I would love to hear what he would do I mean. Uh... Like the one thing I think that he does do really well is this sort of kind of honesty, yeah. And not, uh, not, not the song necessarily, but this, <laughs> this, this sort of real. I mean, you know, just in those the 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 uh, the, the the songs we we're talking about. You know, there, there's a real sort of uh, he really puts it on the page and on the song, and mm-hmm. I'd love to hear. Her. I mean, I'm I'm just really surprised that he hasn't done anything new. It's just crazy. It's crazy to me. Yeah, especially when you know he you know he says he can't really find a way into contemporary music, but he never sounded. I mean, he never at least looking back, it never seemed like he cared that much about being contemporary. Right. You know, uh, when he does an innocent man, that's his doo up throwback album in 1983. I mean, exactly. certainly, I don't know what what he was trying to have a dialogue with in modern music then. But you know, he because he is older and he 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 knows that he can't kind of speak to the kids the way he once did. But I would love to hear Billy Joel's like time out of mind. Like, why why can't you exactly. have like uh, yeah a very old, very honest Billy Joel album about you know the his his life of regrets and you know kind of facing the final act and and, and like I would that would be captivating. That would yeah. be fascinating. I think I agree. Did, now, have you ever heard his classical album? No, <laughs> I, I I'm not sure. <laughs> What there is to get, to glean from Billy Joel from the classical <laughs> album? Uh, have you? No, I've not. 
I, I do feel like as a fan, I sort of owe it to him. Like, clearly, this is something that was a passion project of his. And, right. uh, you know, if he felt first, personally invested enough to make it, we, you know, he should probably give it a chance. But, uh, yeah, it's just hard to kind of reconcile that with the Billy Joel <laughs> yeah. songs that, that, that we know and love. But uh, I agree. Well, hopefully, if he does come back in 2017, it will be with, uh, you know, the pop vocals. And uh, I, I would love to hear it. That would be fantastic. Right. I would do it. Frank DiGiacomo, thank you so much for coming on, man. Thank you. It was a blast. Yeah. Take care. Good time. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad. To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai.